Hello and welcome to the Shiny New Object Podcast. My name is Tom Ollerton and this is a podcast about the future of marketing. Every week I have the privilege and a pleasure to interview someone who is influential in the business and this week is no different. We have Ed Couchman who is General Manager at Snap Inc UK. We were introduced by Dan Brain at Madfest. So Ed, there's people listening to this podcast who might not know who you are or what you do. Can you just give us a bit of background? Hi Tom and hi to all your regular listeners. My name is Ed Couchman and I'm the General Manager for Snap so thank you for your kind introduction. Uh, my day job, though, is to lead uh, the advertising business for Snap in the UK. And you're just coming up to or just past your Snap anniversary? Can I say that? Is I that... think you can say that. It's a, it is called our Snap anniversary. Snap anniversary. Snap anniversary. And I'm just approaching my first Snap anniversary. So I joined the business back in June last year. And before that, you were. I had six years at Facebook. And then prior to that, five years at Channel 4, and then I've worked at uh, Associated Newspapers and an online startup called Add to One. Add to One? Well, tell me about that. What was it? Well, oh, that was back in the early uh, dot-com boom, the very first dot-com boom. And what was the, what was the business? What did it do? It was a uh, reseller, third-party uh, site representation. I loved it, actually. It was a great time. Cool. So, as is customary on the podcast, I like to ask some getting-to-know questions before we get to your shiny new object. So... Some of the people who I interview on this podcast don't read marketing books. Some people are like, do you know what? I just think it's all nonsense. Some people say the best marketing books aren't about marketing. They're about wider things. Where do you stand on that? Oh, do you know what? I do think the best marketing books are marketing books, and there are some marketing classics. Come on, tell me the classics. So um, I think everyone must read uh, Byron Sharp's How Brands Grow. I think you must read it and have an opinion on that as well. For those of your listeners that are less familiar with the text, before you rush out to buy, essentially it's a study that tries to answer that old adage of is marketing communications advertising a science or is it an art? And it firmly lands in the camp of it is a science. Yeah, I, um, I, that is the most recommended book on this podcast and I, I downloaded the audio book. It makes no sense. It's literally impossible to read as an audio book. Because every page in Harvard says, well, if you download yeah. the, uh, the visual to go, then you're like... Argh. Yeah, refer to figure two, yeah, table three. Yeah, it kill, yeah. kills any, any book. And how, what are the other classics in your opinion? So, do you know what? I'm actually going to do a bit of a shameless plug for my second book, actually, if I may. It's written by a guy called uh, Nathan Jugson. He's, yeah. uh, for full disclosure, he's Snap's resident sociologist. And he's just uh, recently done a piece of work around... The book's called The Social Photo. And it's really examining how photography has changed over time. And it's less of a um, something you keep and, and kind of frame and store and has as a kind of record, if you like, and much more how the selfie particularly, but how uh, cameras and our phones have changed our thinking about photos. And it's much more about how photos then become a kind of lens onto the world and a way to kind of see into the world. I'm still reading it though, Tom, so don't ask me any detailed questions on it. So I heard a really interesting interview with, I think, is it Kevin Systrom mm. on Instagram? So that's how you say his name. And he said he read a book on how to read books, and he said that the most important thing you do is, is spend time with the contents page. You should, before you go anywhere, you should really think, do I, do I actually need to know about these things? And then go and read the last paragraph of every every chapter and then make a decision whether you should even yeah, start right. or not which is, whether you should bother to read it yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I did sure try I the other day and it, it, I tried to read all the last paragraphs of um, 
oh, I can't remember. Uh, and I was just like, this, this literally makes no sense whatsoever, <laughs> but, uh, but worth a try. Um, so any other books? Um, there were two. I, I'm also quite a fan of leadership books as well. Okay. And uh, I'm re- reading a book at the moment around leadership styles and appreciating that. Uh, and What's that? It is called Leader 2.0, a terrible name. can't remember <laughs> the author, awful. but actually a very good book. Um, uh, to save me having to read that, what are the key take out from that? Uh, it's around authenticity, authenticity, being honest, uh, being close to your teams, understanding the business, and basically just kind of being a human being. Demonstrating care, I think, comes through as well. Right. And uh, do you have any demonstrating care techniques that I can pick up? Um, Tom, I'd only encourage you to be a human being and take, make, the, <laughs> make the time and effort to get to know people and what's important to them. But I'm sure that'll come naturally to you. Well, well, well I'm not sure my colleagues would agree with me entirely on, with you entirely on that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I think the Nathan Johnson ones that's particularly interesting. I will, uh, I'll, I'll check that out. Okay, so, so you've got. Um, the three books there that in some ways are asking the reader to challenge their perspective mm. on, on the industry, on their job but, uh, but outside of these books what new belief or behaviour has changed the way that you work in the last few years? So something that really stuck out to me um, which I've kind of accelerated or do more of in the last few years and that's giving back so I think it's really important to give back to things that are being good to me. And those things that are being good to me is the industry. So uh, I advertise in communications, particularly digital media. So for example, uh, I sit on the NABS, the Advertising Benevolent Fund uh, committee. Uh, that raises uh, money, obviously, for all the good work NABS does, particularly around mental health, anxiety and stress right now, because the calls they receive for that uh, category are increasing all the time. Their main fundraiser, another plug, is on Thursday at this Stranger Than Summer Ball, uh, which um, obviously attending, and that's a really great cause. And the other thing, one of my other sort of personal passions are around uh, comprehensive schools, actually. Uh, I, I went to comprehensive myself, and I think it's fair to say, because the research backs this up, that actually pupils that attend comprehensive school maybe have lower aspirations, particularly those. Uh, schools in maybe more disadvantaged areas of the UK and I think uh, so I work with something called Speakers for Schools and Circle which essentially send people from business uh, and uh, journalism and politics and uh, NGOs back into schools just to share their kind of experiences etc. So we'll come on to that in a second I've not heard of it before but you talked about your work with NABs and you said that they're getting increasing contact about mental health and anxiety yep so they the number of calls they receive to their free advice line uh and they categorize each call but around stress and anxiety and uh, feeling overwhelmed have increased uh, demonstrably year over year why do you think that is it's interesting i think as a society that clearly mental health is uh, a topic that's getting more and more awareness and i think people are more attuned then for when they're feeling those things as well and it feels that society is speeding up and i think that can be quite challenging for some people and which is the more, I don't know, a, a more effective factor? Is it, is it because people are becoming sort of um, more aware of their mental health issues or, uh, or categorising it themselves as mental health? Or is it because the industry is exploding on loads of different channels and client expectations are far greater? Or, or are, those, are those related or are they just existing in parallel? It's hard to see them not relating but I do think that the national debate has opened up about mental health and I think that's a really really good thing because I think it's been 
uh, proven that if you talk about this and kind of either self-diagnose or speak to someone else that can get you help, then actually that can really help release some of the main uh, causes and some of the issues around mental health. So I think it's a great thing that people are talking about it. So this leads nicely on to a question I always ask about overwhelm. So if people are calling the mm. NABS free advice line, that, that would be an indication of overwhelm. Mm. Like, how do you deal with that? You, I mean, you've, you've had some pretty big jobs and this one's no smaller. Uh, you must have a lot of reports and targets and all the rest of it. How, how have you managed to navigate overwhelm and um, your own issues with either of those two things? So one of the things that I've learned is to slow down, to speed up. Bear with me, a couple of things. So basically try and give yourself some time during the day. So for me, I tend to go and do a spin class a couple of times each week during lunch. You know, it's one of those ones where the kind of lights go down, the music's on, you're right to the beat. Yeah, Um, Yeah, very well. (laughs) What I find is, A, that really clears your head. You get that time back. Um, and you feel more refreshed and, and feel revitalized for the afternoon. I always do it at lunchtime, so it kind of gives you that kind of second burst of energy for the afternoon. And the other thing that I've been experimenting with, and we're fortunate here, we're in the heart of London's West End in Soho, and you can really get out and just walk the streets. So I've uh, been doing some walking one to ones. We have a great coffee shop um, just around the corner on Golden Square and the Nordic Bakery, and maybe walking, getting coffee, and then just having a chat with your um, directs as you kind of spend that time together. And I think what tends to happen is that people open up much more in those one-to-ones. You know, you're less eye contact in a strange ways. I'm not sure if you've ever had one of those long drives with someone and you have these really great conversations because you're staring out the open windows. And it's like it's a little bit like that. You just walk around the square, get a coffee, and have a really good conversation. So what's the speed up bit or is that the spin class no so i think you slow down so walking one-to-one or um the spin class and then when you've done that you kind of feel more energy to speed up again right and so this is a fairly common theme in the podcast is this idea of going for walks walking meetings mm. walking one-to-ones which i've tried and, and do enjoy in the summer <laughs> um but how do you find the time to actually make that happen because there's yeah, slowing down, meditating, breathing, all that stuff. Uh, but I'm always fascinated by how you actually make it happen. Because I've seen your diary. You showed me your diary because we do it in the same weird way. And it doesn't look like you've got a lot of time. So let's share with uh, your listeners then our OCD diary. Because I think this is the key to yeah. it. Yeah. So for your listeners, we... Uh, Tom and I both share a trait of colour coding our diaries, which obviously gives you the visual stimulus of knowing what you're meant to be doing, kind of just very briefly. But importantly, it, is a, it does give you a sense of control. And essentially what I found was, if you book these things in your diary and mark them a certain colour, you don't move them, then it, and just stick to that, then it actually works. How do you stick to it though? Because I was like, uh, I went through a phase of marking all the, like, the wellness things in green, mm. whether that's like meditation or breathing. Or so it's a positive colour as well, isn't it? Green, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but then invariably someone go, oh we need to do 10 minutes on this this project or whatever so oh can you can you spare your meditation time and it's very difficult for me to go no I need to go and sit in the toilet and think about clouds can I confess I actually find meditation really hard it just doesn't work for me like you sit there you do your breathing you've got your feet grounded on the floor and it doesn't work for me hence why I got into the walking actually have you tried heart rate variability training 
This is a big Tim Ferriss thing. Isn't that where you did? No, I guess in well, short. So what it is, is that you, you track your heart rate for using whatever Fitbit. But what you're trying to do is get your heart rate to a, a certain level because above a certain level, your decision-making just goes terribly. So it's all about breathing to get your heart rate variability. Mm. So instead of it being like, control your breathing to become one with your inner you, it's like, I just need to get my heart rate to a certain level mm. so I can make better decisions. And I think mm. that a lot of more... Um, left brain people can make more sense of it that way it's quite an interesting thing I should maybe try yeah well I should as well I, yeah. I'm, I'm selling in something I've never done which is embarrassing um, so I'm glad to know a man in your position can still find time to, to do those things so in order to do that you must turn down other meetings you must you must have mastered the ability to say no to things and people like how, how what things have you become better at saying no to so I think I, I didn't quite have that epiphany moment, but I definitely had that kind of uh, more of a slow realization that you have to learn to say no to the things where you go, actually, can I really add value to that? That meeting, that conference call, that seminar, whatever it might be, it's like actually ask yourself, can I have value to that? And what I found was when I did start saying no to things, I felt better, but also my team or whoever was in that meeting felt more empowered. They could grow and make those decisions. So it did kind of work for us, actually. Right. And what's the most painful thing for you to say no to? So I think the tough thing, and you touched on this, is when someone from your team says, look, actually, I really need 10 minutes with you. And right. that can be a much harder no. And trying to make sure you accommodate that with a not right now, but I'll absolutely find time with you during the next hour, two, three, whatever it might be. So I think that's the toughest so one. So like immediate ask, like, can yeah. you just jump on this thing? And you're like, so you've got a soft no there. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Not right now. Not right it's now. a no, not right now. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, okay. No, yeah. no, not at all. Um, so different question. So what is the thing that you've spent your own money on? But not that you've expensed, but what's the thing you've spent your own money on that you have used for work? So it's two, and I brought them both with me, Tom. So as a audio medium, this is going to be quite painful, <laughs> listeners. So I'm going to do my best to articulate it and bring it to life. So the first is a disposable camera, which, shock horror, is no longer referred to as a disposable camera. It's actually referred to as a vintage camera. Can I have a look? Please do. Thank you. It has all those familiar sounds where you click, you then wind on, you have to charge the flash until the red button, uh, the red light actually flashes, yeah. ready to go. And it costs four ninety nine in boots. You still get them in boots, but as I said, it is in the gift vintage camera section. And <laughs> and I tend to use it when I do some public speaking. Uh, so maybe at Adfest actually was the first time I used it. Another yeah. plug for Adfest, and uh, it's a great way to start a talk or presentation to remind people how the cameras change. So less about that. Um, taking a picture where you frame it, you crop it, you get everyone huddled together, you smile and you freeze the moment, and then for prosperity, and then you put it in an album and never look at it again, and much more around how people are now using their camera differently, about living in the moment and being creative and all that real fun stuff. So in that camera, you have lots of pictures of audiences at conferences? Well, yes, but now we're going to add to it a live podcast picture, so charging, wound on. Excellent. Look at that. It's fantastic. And the second one I brought with me is you're going to be much more familiar with, and that is my uh, Apple AirPods, which I've only had for uh, a couple of, uh, about a month maybe. And it's an amazing thing because the change is quite simple. It's just freedom from wires. But the effect it's had, listen to so much more music and audio and podcasts, of course, 
Uh, Why is that meant you listen to more music than if you were just plugged in? Yeah, do you know what? It's hard to understand. Is that freedom from wires? Clearly, you can keep your phone in your pocket or in your back, you know, so you don't have that connection. Uh, So I'm not sure whether it's a physical thing or a mental thing, but I certainly at least 2x the amount of audio I listen to. Really? And what? Give me some podcast. so I'm going to go for an industry, and it's another old one actually, but it's a classic. It's the Jeremy Bullmore WPP essays. So he, uh, it's a bit like the Reith lectures, but for marketing. And he used to issue an essay each uh, year. And the last one I listened to was the uh, why it's important to have an office in Kuala Lumpur. Right. Why is it important to have an office? It actually delves into the pitch process. And sometimes talking about how clients can find no other reason not to award the business only because they didn't have an office in Kuala Lumpur. I, I think I know what you're getting at. Can you explain that in a bit more detail to the audience? Yeah, so I think, and uh, apologies if Jeremy is listening. I'm sure, I'm sure he is. <laughs> I'm sure he is. Uh, essentially saying it's so, like, um, as a pitching agency, you have to work really hard to make a difference and to be different to take a different view or have a different piece of, uh, different voice or have different quality of work don't let it come down to the fact that you don't have an office in Kuala Lumpur right okay so which I think is a genuine example that Jeremy shared that they lost a piece of business because they didn't have an office in Kuala Lumpur you see I think that's bullshit because I've been in sales and pitching for my entire career and that is exactly the kind of thing that they will say to you because they don't want to tell you they didn't like you yeah or, exactly which is an excuse because you didn't have a great piece of uh, point of view or a piece of work or a great voice yeah, yeah. I think the most crushing talk I saw at a conference it was, it was one of the drums new business conferences I was speaking at it weirdly and they were interviewing some guy who used to be the head of marketing at, at Metro right? mm. and he said he had five pitches and two of them he decided he wasn't going to work with them by the time they sat down mm. it's just he, he wasn't like I don't like them or he was you know judge them on their race or gender or whatever he was just like I just knew that I wasn't going to spend loads of time with these people before the, the bombs had hit the seats and I, so just, I would question that and my challenge would that be is that based on unconscious bias a, a bias of some description yeah. but then again your feel and your you know um, the, if someone's not carrying themselves with confidence or they're not in projecting something that you require in them it, it, does it go a bit deeper than that? Yeah, I think it does one of the great things about working at Snap is that we spend quite a lot of time helping us understand our unconscious bias and thinking that through so you don't make those Snap judgments that you aren't using just some explicit signals or implicit signals about trying to think those things through and giving people time because you're right they might have been nervous but actually is that necessarily a bad thing? So tell me about that and this is a incredibly modern thing that you guys are doing you're helping you yourselves understand your own unconscious biases so how does like how does that work is that training or is that like a collective thing you all do uh, so it has been some training so uh and the whole company's been through this actually and you spend the day firstly understanding your unconscious biases essentially what they are and what that means and then think about ways you can counterbalance them so um, this is massively intriguing to me. So uh, what are those tools that, like, give me an example. So firstly, I think it's a good example. We just talked about that, making that snap judgment. That interview is another one of those key moments where people make snap judgments. You know, people make a decision within the first two, three minutes, often before someone's even spoken. And being aware that you're doing that 
and giving someone the opportunity to maybe challenge you or just giving them a space to be kind of different essentially you know some people are extroverts or introverts maybe some people are more confident to speak up some are less confident making sure that we are inclusive so if we're chairing a meeting and someone hasn't spoken to kind of encourage them to do that so Tom I think you've got some strong views on this subject why don't you let me know what you're thinking Wow, that is that's fantastic. So, uh, just before we kind of move on to your shiny new object, you've elected to answer a question not very many people do, so congratulations on that. Uh, the question is, how do you want people to remember your career? So, this is a challenging question, and I kind of reflected on it somewhat. And for me, you know, one of my hopes, ambitions, is that people are working at Snap right now look back at their time at Snap and say, that was the best moment of my career. That when they get to their 60s or 65s or whatever time they retire, they look back and say, you know what, I worked at Snap during 2018 to whenever it might be, and they say that was the time where I had my uh, best work friends, my best colleagues, they challenged me, they held me accountable, I grew the most, I was part of a successful team, we grew the business, all those things, but essentially look back and go, you know what, I was there for those years and that was the time that I really shone and the time I look back at most fondly. But that's Snap, that's not you. That, uh, that, 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 that's, a, that's a lovely thing to say, but what about, what about you specifically? How are they gonna talk about you? So I think the key though is that I've created or helped create that culture, that inclusive environment where people feel they can be that, where they can feel they can be their best selves at work. Where, you know, one of the great things about Snap is that we have this uh, desire to kind of spread positivity and kind of spread social good. I think having that embedded in everything we do helps create that culture, that inclusiveness. So I'm going to share something that's uh, kind of slightly embarrassing. So I, I don't know how familiar you are with Bruce Daisy's podcast. I'm a, a big fan of what he's doing. Work, sleep, this. repeat. Yes, uh, his uh, new work manifesto. And mm. when we started our business, we were like, right, well, you know, we need some values that we can talk to new hires about. And I said, well, look, I listened to this podcast. What Bruce has done, he's interviewed some of the, the best people in people in the business. And he has this list of rules, which is a good place to start. And one of those things was, I think it's a be yourself or be freedom to be who mm. you are. So I sat down with everyone and I'm like, right, what we're going to do? We're going to have this place where we work. We're all free to be ourselves. And they and like they just won't stop taking the piss out of me ever since I've said that. <laughs> so they're just like, are you being yourself now? So how, how do you do that? Like, it makes so much sense on a slide uh, with a sort of Californian West Coast uh, accent, but like in a cynical rainy day London, actually, how do you create a culture whereby people can be themselves? Um, so I think it's about, as I said, being inclusive, being diverse, so we represent London. If it feels like London's in the office, if that makes sense, and all the uh, different beliefs and genders and religious beliefs, etc. So we all feel kind of diverse and inclusive. But it's about having a safe space, isn't it, where you kind of, you welcome different views from your own, where you welcome different perspectives from your own, that you encourage people to share. And Snap's values are to be kind, be smart, and be creative. I think trying to live those values is really, really important. Indeed. So we're going to move on now to your shiny new object. So what is it? Well, Tom, my shiny new object is, do we have a drum roll? There it is. It is actually both a thing and a behavior. And the thing is augmented reality. And the behavior is a move towards an embracing camera marketing. Cool. All right, so explain both of those two things 
for the audience. Okay, so augmented reality is essentially uh, layering on the digital world to your physical world. And camera marketing is the marketing communication advertising industry embracing the camera as a brave, new, exciting, creative canvas. Right, so both of those things have been around a while. So I remember I used to work for a digital agency called Skive years ago, uh, and a, uh, one of the developers there had an AR business card, but you know you had to like hold it in front of your your laptop with a camera, and it was it was pretty convoluted. But uh, Snap are one of the pioneers in this space. So so tell me a bit more before we come on to the the camera marketing bit. What are we going to see in augmented reality in the next 12 months that we haven't seen before? So I think it's one of those classics where the industry kind of over-inflate uh, the importance in the short term but underestimate it in the long term. And we're hitting that mark now where we're seeing camera natives, as we call them. They've grown up with a camera. One of the key differences, obviously, you used to have a laptop, now the phone's in your pocket. If you look at the whole range of new phones coming out from all the manufacturers, the cameras are becoming more and more powerful. Even three or four lenses, super zooms, the quality megapixels. So the camera is kind of central to the phone. So I'm gonna push you on that, just I'm not a phone nerd. Uh, so what does that mean, there's so these three cameras, like you can zoom in more, what, why, why is this important? So I think what we're seeing are young people and people of all ages actually using their camera as a way to help them navigate. So that, we talked about AR, so it can be a utility, essentially, or they, one of the interesting behaviours we saw in Snap were when people were waking up, they were taking a snap and then kind of Xing out of that. We thought that actually as an app, that's quite a bad thing. And when you delve deeper, what they're actually doing is taking a snap and then checking the weather. And they were, instead of going to, say, weather.com or BBC Weather, because that functionality was in the app, they were using Snap to check that. So right, they're kind so of able to take a selfie and then check the weather straight from there. You, uh, one of the tools we have is a, a, a weather check, essentially. Right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, or using it to, as you might know, if those familiar, your listeners are familiar with the app, um, you can check a song on Shazam. So you hear it in the background, you press and hold on the camera, yeah. and it comes up the track. If you are a listener in the US, then you can hover your camera over an image or a brand name and click straight through to Amazon to go and buy. So what we're saying is that kind of utility through the camera, as well as all the fun stuff with uh, vomiting rainbows and dog ears, which you might be more familiar with, the kind of creativity and playful sort of thing. So that's new to me. So let's, let's hear more about that. So using AR as a utility, and, and is it using AR in a a world that's recognisable by the intelligence within the app. And those things seem quite functional, finding the song, finding an object. What else is possible? So uh, I think one of the more exciting things we're seeing are, are two pieces of technology. One's called Markatech and one's called Landmark Tech. So let me elaborate okay. on both. So let me start with Landmark Tech. And essentially that's bringing uh, physical objects in the real world to life. And we started with a handful of landmarks across the world. So that could be the Flatiron Building in New York, the Eiffel Tower in Paris, or Buckingham Palace in London. And you open your camera, uh, which obviously recognizes Buck Palace, and that brings Buck Palace to life, essentially, that there are two lions that come on top, you know, from the Royal Crest, etc. And uh, we're partnering with brands. So if you are in Paris right now and you're at the Eiffel Tower, then uh, we've worked with Coke and they are relaunching uh, Tropico, which is a big tropical uh, juice drink from the 80s. It's coming back. And lo and behold, the Eiffel Tower turns into a tropical paradise. Uh, the uh, character from the uh, drink is a, a tropical parrot and that kind of flies around the Eiffel Tower. 
And what is the user experience here? So you're just holding up your snap camera and then it just... It so actually, yeah, behind the scenes, there's an awful lot of computing uh, engineering in this. And one of the reasons what kind of makes my heart jump for joy, that's built from London. So we have an engineering team in London that are kind of pioneering in this space. So that's big kind of great British export. And essentially, whatever angle, whatever position you are outside the Alpha Tower, it kind of renders correctly. So you hold up your camera, phone, that snap, show, and show it, and then it kind of layers on around it. So it's kind of a real merge between the physical world and the digital world. And what's the call to action for the user are these just surprise and delight moments where they or does it go oh you're in Paris why don't you go to the Eiffel Tower and point your camera at it or are you just both to like surprise yourself so they're kind of paid media opportunities to kind of let people know about it but essentially if you're at the landmark attraction you're on snap you go into your normal lens carousel and it's right there right um, so with the lens carousels, you're swiping across. Exactly, to, yeah. So you have to be looking at the Eiffel Tower and then swipe through to, to find it, essentially, to give you an augmented experience. And so what? So that's great. Um, and being an ex-innovation director just you know, drives <laughs> me crazy. Like That would just a, be such a cool thing to do. But what, what's the future of that? Does that mean that uh, every time you hold up your camera and someone's wearing a pair of Nikes that they're going to spring to life? Or how, how does this play out for you guys? We've actually already done that. Oh, yeah. Okay. So actually, with, with Adidas, you could actually try on a new trainer. So you kind of it, it kind of knows your feet, sort of size, and kind of renders correctly. So you're right. It's, uh, so I see lots of uh, applications, maybe in beauty and fashion. Uh, obviously, beauty is pretty straightforward. Trying on, um, not trying on, trying out um, makeup, blushes, or lipstick, or eyeliner, for example. And then obviously, items of clothing can actually physically try that on as well. So it's pretty exciting, actually. And so. I always like to ask the question, if someone's from a brand, there, there isn't a Coke, isn't an Adidas, doesn't have the, the cash to you know, spend on a big 3D build on a, mm. on a lens, what is the opportunity for AR for a, a, a brand with more modest aspirations? I think we see some really great uh, examples of this with more performance-led advertisers. A couple jumped to mind for me, um, and I think the illustration best served by Just Eat, the food delivery business. Now, a large percentage of their orders, a key trading time for them essentially is payday weekend. And crucial time, everyone's celebrating, you know, they're out, maybe going out and they need something to eat when they get home or crashing out on the sofa watching Netflix. And so what they do is they actually have some AR experiences uh, on say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, so leading up to that weekend, where it's simply, it's kind of an elaboration on the selfie. So you have different cuisine types circling around your head. You open your mouth and you gulp down and eat your sushi or your, um, or your, I'm running out of food types, pasta or whatever it might be. Uh, that kind of raises awareness in quite a playful way. And then when you reach payday weekend, they're just kind of based on your behavior uh, historically, serve you some straightforward snap ads or story ads, essentially. Right, okay, so you, you're putting yourself in the consideration set for sushi just by playing with the lens on a, on a Monday, mm. and then you get retargeted based on a battery. Because actually what you hear is, from the marketing industry, that there's a crisis of attention right now, that our lives are speeding up, we're bombarded by more and more messages, and trying to get attention is really difficult. And we think AR can be an absolute counterbalance to that, because what we see are people are really happy to spend some time in those type of experiences. And so for those performance brands, how does that stack up from a ROI perspective? Because I'm, I'm sure that there's, a, there's deals on the table to try interesting things at, at Snap. Um, but if you're doing a 3D build for a, 
a lens. I mean, that's going to be fairly expensive. The media retargeting is going to be quite a lot there. Like how, how is that stacking up for brands in terms of actually you know, delivering bottom line? So I think it's a real classic uh, perception reality gap here that actually the perception is that AR is really expensive, you need a 3D studio, takes weeks of development. And what we're seeing are a real um, uptick, uprising of independent uh, agencies that are building this work. So someone like Byte or Unit 9 that are kind of a bit nimble and agile and taking skill sets maybe from a 3D illustrator actually, or a, you're still using art design, so it's still a craft of the work, but much, much more nimble. Right, okay, excellent. Um, so, so we, I guess we've sort of come, come across it a bit, but camera marketing, so can you tell me a bit more, is that a term that you guys are trying to coin or? Um... Um, so as we mentioned from when we kicked off actually, I've been uh, in the role for about a year now, and one thing that really struck me when I first arrived was that the industry just kind of weren't getting Snap. That actually, you know, we saw we have around 16 million people that use uh, Snap on a regular basis, and we think it's a really crucial part of their lives. And we thought the camera is this great new creative canvas and a great way to engage with uh, those people. And what we saw was that actually the industry kind of weren't quite getting it. And over the course of the last year, I've really seen the creative community, the media community, uh, some of those independent agents as well, really embracing camera marketing. And I think it's a great way for brands to tell their story, really address that attention deficit, but as we mentioned, also kind of driving really positive ROI. And so who's done this the best? What are the kind of success stories that you've seen in your first year that you're really proud of for Snap UK? Oh, do you know what? We, we actually have loads. So right, live right now on the platform, celebrating the kickoff of the Women's World Cup, which is forthcoming as Nike. They're calling out all of their kind of key players. Is a great example. We talked about Just Eat. Uh, Mondelez had a great campaign for Orlo Cookies. How does the, the Women's World Cup one work? What's the experience? I could show you, but it's not going to bring it to life, is it? <laughs> Essentially, open the camera. You either have, have a selfie of yourself, yeah. uh, and the backdrop is loads of fans, or you turn the camera out to the world, and we render eight or nine players uh, from all the teams that are participating. That makes sense. It's beautifully described. And uh, no, what was the other one you mentioned? I've completely forgot. Oreo cookies. Oreo, yeah. thank you. Uh, so Mondelez, uh, again, multinational campaign. Essentially, in really uh, simplistic terms, you put your face in the centre of an Oreo cookie. I mean, who doesn't want to do that? And then you can dunk it. Right, what, within the, the animation? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, so, so what are we going to see in the next 12 months? I think you've given two really nice angles there. You've given the kind of utility, like the... Um, uh, the weather or finding a product or finding some music which is, which is great but then this kind of flamboyant Oreo on a cookie Nike you know really mm. colourful um, Eiffel Tower type stuff so th- those are kind of very different things like wh- what's the future for you guys what, what are we going to see coming up so I think there's a couple of things that jump out I think we're going to see a continuation of those two themes so a kind of performance led some of the sharpest uh, performance marketeers I think are in the gaming community uh, so hyper-casual gaming, ca- hyper-casual gaming or mobile app gaming. I've seen them embracing um, AR as well. So I think that's a big thing. And then secondly, we're still going to see these big kind of moments. So that could be a moment that has cultural significance. So dare I say Love Island is launching this evening on ICV. Great show. And we have a whole bunch of uh, brands and advertisers that are kind of already involved in that show, but extending their TV sponsorships with some kind of interactions or playful things on Snap. 
or moments that are important to brands. You've got cultural moments or moments that are important to brands. So that could be launching something. That could be a new car model. And again, that utility comes to life where you can actually see the car on your drive through a world lens, where you can kind of jump into the cabin and explore sort of the feature of the car. So I think those dual themes of uh, performance advertising and kind of brand building as a canvas, I think we're going to see play out. So, slightly odd question here. Given that you'd spent such a long time at Facebook and presumably been across a lot of the innovations there as well, what's been the thing that surprised you the most being at Snap in the last year that you didn't know before you got here? So I think it goes back to that creativity of the platform, actually. I completely underestimated just how creative Snap is, how playful it is, how fun it is, how, how our users' community express themselves, but also how brands can tell their stories that actually there was a attention crisis and that attention crisis is absolutely uh, kind of cured on, on Snap. So the attention crisis is a, is a really interesting one and um, I, I read an article years ago that really stuck with me. It was this idea of content shock. So that there's, a, there's only so many hours in the day and, and it, there's more and more ways to kind of fill up all that time. I mean, the most extreme version would be something like a self-driving car. Great, you don't have to drive to work. Then there's a, there's a whole mm. kind of content experience there. We've seen things like Waze, uh, the navigation app, mm. that as soon as you hit the brake, it pops up an ad, like, oh, there's a mm. Domino's near you or a Asda or whatever mm. it is. So we've kind of like crammed all of the, the ad opportunities we can. And the idea of content crisis was that, um, you know, if everyone keeps on creating content, everyone's a content marketer, then there's only so much content that people can see. And I think you guys are innovating in massively creative and playful ways, but there has to be a glass ceiling at some point, or is this going to turn into virtual reality, you know, 360, 4D experiences? Like, where, where does this stop? Or are we, are we reaching the end, or are we just starting? So I feel we're just getting started. And I do feel that the digital world and physical world are merging into the world. And what happens then is the craft of the work becomes much, much more important. That actually the art direction, the story you're trying to tell actually becomes paramount. And think about how you can make something that's arresting or thought-provoking or interesting becomes much, much more crucial. And are we needing a different skill set here? It was so nice to to say that the, the craft is becoming more important uh, certainly in, in our world where we're working with creative artificial intelligence you know there's this fear that you know that mm. will you know, become less relevant but are we looking at different roles here are we are we think uh, agencies going to start um, hiring camera marketers will that be head <laughs> of camera marketing at, uh, at Mondelez um, so interestingly I, I think I'm not sure about the title but the skill sets of art direction production values 3D illustrators they are the skill sets that I think are required for camera marketing. And we're seeing that. We're seeing talent having those skills. But I'm not sure about the title. Right. And then uh, how much of that stuff do you do here? You mentioned that you're really proud of uh, the, the, the Eiffel Tower team. Mm. So is, um, you have your own creative units. Is, so are you encouraging brands to work directly with you guys as opposed to fire agencies? Or are you... Do you know what? We do have production capabilities here, but we've equally uh, two things. We're trying to really stimulate and encourage a kind of third-party ecosystem, and we're seeing agencies do that with, say, Byte or Unit 9, which we talked about. But additionally, we've created something called Lens Studio. It's kind of like Photoshop, but for AR. 
that is a desktop tool that's pre-populated with some basic templates, which then designers, 3D illustrators can build on top of. And if you uh, scroll through to the end of your carousel on Snap, that opens up all the lenses that have been created by the community. And we're seeing you know, folks coming out of uh, graduating from design school, say even St. Martin's, that are producing some world-class lenses. So tell me about some of the best ones that you've seen. Yeah, there's an excellent one that is a, uh, do you know the kind of Chinese dragon that, you know, you get the people underneath it and it moves around? A virtual yeah. version of that. Some of the ones we talked about, uh, Landmark Tech, you know, outside Buckingham Palace with the lions, outside the Alpha Tower, Flat Iron Building, they're being created by the community, essentially. So we're seeing this real okay. um, self-expression from the creative folks that are using it, and that's why we kind of think, is this the, you know, the next big creative canvas? And then, so tell me, if you can, about the story around the, uh, the lions. So that was a... a, a creative community thing yes. and then that was sold into um, actually so just taking a step back just before we launched uh, Landmark Tech we actually reached out to some of the kind of some of the brightest best uh, AR creators in the community and, asked, and gave them special access to that and asked them to create something right so there's a real hook there for independent creators to create these lenses because actually that's a that's a kind of unique source of talent for you guys. Yeah. And is that organised or is that just like get it out there? Is there a ranking system? How how if I was I don't know my my nephew was a, a, a creative. How would you how would you encourage someone to get involved in that community and, and yep. be successful? In so I'd really encourage them to download Lens Studio play, build, test, learn, iterate, and get it out there. Share it with their friends. Give their friends, you get a snap code, essentially. Give that to your mates and get them to play about with it. Right, and then how does that come up on your radar? How does how would, how would does the little guy get noticed within that community? Yep. So as I mentioned, when you, some of them are geographically based, so it could be around the area we talked about, uh, and they just basically enter the carousel. And we're looking at ways we can try and surface some of the best ones. Right, brilliant. Well, look, we have to leave it there, unfortunately. Um, that was a real education for me. I didn't know a lot of that stuff, so thank you so much. I, um, as I mentioned before the talk, I was on Snap like literally years and years ago. So to, to see that it has fostered and encouraged so many of the things that I think are brilliant about the industry is fantastic, all the way down to you know the little guy being able to make a lens that can then be picked up and be part of a massively successful campaign. So thank you so much. Um, Ed, if someone wants to get in touch with you directly, how would you like them to do that? On Snapchat, of course, Tom. Ed Couchman 1. Ed, can you spell that for me? E-D-C-O-U-C-H-M-A-N 1. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Pleasure.